open up God's Word, and so let's do that. Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 190, 139. So turn to Psalm 139. Back in September, we started a new series on the attributes of God, and we're continuing through that, and we'll be in this series till the new year. And our goal has been to consider our God, to look at our God, to know our God. For that's the whole goal of the Christian faith, is to know God. And so Psalm 139 is a rich psalm that shows us God. And so hear God's word. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies." Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be in any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are here with us. David tells us so. And so we, we embrace your presence. You are here with us. And so would you search us and know us, Would you alert us to the sin in our lives and lead us in the way of everlasting? Would you encourage us and nourish us and keep us with your word? Would you be our rock and our help now? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to set up our doctrine this morning with a story. And so we'll start with this. Everything that could have went wrong for John Payton, went wrong. After four years of difficult ministry on a small island in the South Pacific, John Payton had lost everything. And when I say everything, he lost 
everything. He had lost his wife, first of all, and then he lost his infant son. And then he had to bury both of them with his own hands, for he was the only one who would have buried them. And he lost more as well. There was so much loss to endure. He lost nearly every possession that he had owned and brought to the island. Everything was stolen from him. Everything was pillaged from him, piece by piece by piece. Everything was taken away. And as you consider the whole of the situation, if you, if you zoom out and look at Peyton, he lost his mission as well. He had gone to that island in the South Pacific to win these natives on this island for Jesus. He wanted to plant a flag for Jesus' kingdom there. But after four years of ministry, after leveraging everything he had and everything he was, if you measured his mission, whatever metric he used, it was a failure. Spectacularly so. And Peyton only had one more thing that he could lose in his present situation, and that was his life. And so after four years of lonely and difficult ministry, the island exploded with violence. Hundreds of men grabbed whatever weapons they could find, whether muskets or or swords or spears, and they went out searching for Peyton, this missionary. They wanted to destroy his life and his message from their island. And so Peyton did the only thing a reasonable man can do in such a situation as his. his. He, he ran and he fled and he hid himself in a tree for a whole night in, in hope that some sort of rescue would come through for him. And I want to describe to you that night that Peyton spent in that tree all by himself with hundreds of natives searching for him wanting to kill him. And so he wrote an autobiography of his life and he records that night for us and he says this, I quote him. I climbed into the tree and was left there all alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me. And speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played upon my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not all alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Alone, yet not all alone alone. That was Peyton's experience and he would go on writing about this night later in his autobiography and he would say this, another paragraph, without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, lo, I am always with you even to the end of the age, became so real that would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Savior in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. So as we think about Peyton's situation, all that's going on, he's got trouble, he's got trial, he's hunted, His mission's a failure. He's lost his family. He's lost everything. 
And there's one consolation that keeps him in the midst of all of it, and it is the dear and near presence of his God. Payton tells us that the Lord Jesus was with him, and it was the Lord, Je- Lord Jesus' presence that, that kept him. And what I love about Peyton is he's an evangelist, and so he tells his story, but he, he doesn't tell it for history's sake. He wants to make use of it. And, and so after he recounts these scenes of his life, he turns to the readers of his autobiography, and he speaks really plain to them, and he speaks plain to us this morning, and he says this, If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very brace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? So I ask you this morning, do you have a friend who will never fail you, who's with you always? Peyton had that friend, and what Peyton had is not... (laughs) exclusive to Peyton alone. This is something that God's people have experienced throughout the centuries. God's people have always had the pledge of God's near presence. Abraham had this pledge. In fact, this pledge of God's near presence was at root of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 17, 7, the Lord said to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And what Abraham had in that pledge is what his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons experienced for generations. Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to Isaac and, and said to Isaac this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Why? For I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. And the same exact truth was given to Jacob, but it was given to Jacob in in greater color with more vivid detail. Jacob had this vision at night. There was this staircase leading up into the heavens and and coming down and going up were, were angels. And as Jacob sought to understand this in the word of the Lord, the truth came to him that Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, was with him. And as we keep on with the generations, the same was true for for Joseph. Whether he was at the bottom of a pit or when he was sold into slavery in Potiphar's house or he was in the prison or he was with Pharaoh, the truth was this, God was with him wherever he went. And that meant that God was turning evil for good and that God, his God, was turning every harm for his good, protecting him, preserving him. And as we fast forward among the generations, David too experienced this great reality. We know these words from Psalm 23, they're they're well-worn and we find comfort in them. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your staff, your rod, they comfort me. And what these men had in God, we think of Abraham, we think of Isaac, we think of Jacob, we think of, of David... All Israel had as well as a corporate people. Think about Israel traveling through the wilderness. God set before his people visible signs of his presence. As they traveled by day, God set up a a column, a pillar of clouds. And by night, there was a, a column, a pillar of fire, and there were these visible testimonies. The Lord saying to his people, I am with you and I am leading you, I am protecting you and I am keeping you. And Israel needed that. 
And as we think about it, God's presence has always been the consolation for the people of God, and it is yet our consolation to this very day, for we have a promise from our Lord. Jesus says to all of his disciples, every man, every woman, every child that belongs to Jesus has this promise, Matthew 28, 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so we take all of this in. We've got Peyton's testimony We've got the testimony of Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've got David's life. We've got the story of Israel. And all of this leads us to consider a great doctrine. These stories are a subspecies of a greater reality. And the greater reality is the omnipresence of God. So here is your sentence for today. God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. And so what do we mean by that word? God is omnipresent omnipresent. Well, like last week, and so last week we were thinking about God's eternity, his eternality. We are considering God's immensity. We are considering God's plenitude, and specifically here with omnipresence, we are considering his plenitude and immensity as it relates to location and space. And what omnipresence declares to us is that God's being cannot be contained or constrained by any spatial limit. No upward heights can contain him, nor downward depth can limit him, nor limit any limit to the west or the east can limit his perfect life, nor can any spatial limit limit God, because there are no limits to God's perfect life, for God's being transcends all location and limit. So that's what we mean by God's omnipresence. And it gets interesting here when we start reading our Bibles. Though it is clear that God cannot be limited by any location or spatial reality, that the scriptures teach us like this. They teach us God's omnipresence, his bigness, his immensity, by describing his presence in terms of location and spatial reality. And why did the scriptures do this? Well, the scriptures do this because the scriptures understand that God knows us. We are limited creatures. We're bound by space and time and location. And so God wants us to give, give us a small sampling of his immensity. And so he speaks in terms of location so that we might just begin to grasp who he is. Or to put it another way, God loves us and he understands who we are. And so he starts serving us baby food because that's all we can get down. So this is where I want to take a look at Psalm 139, just to start describing God's immensity. And so in Psalm 139, David goes on a quest, and as he writes this psalm for God's people, he wants us to go with him on this quest. And he frames this quest in terms of a question. You see the question in verse 7. David asks, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? As we think about verse 7, we, we could put it in other words. We could ask, is there somewhere you can go to get away from God? Is there somewhere you can go in created reality where God is not? Is there some place where God's face isn't? Is that true? So David wants us to go on this quest with him, and he leads us. Look at verse 8. David poses this. He says, if I were to ascend to heaven... What is David doing here in verse 8? He is looking up, and he's not just looking at the sky. You think about the things in the sky. You've got the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds. He's looking at them, but he is going further. He's looking up to the realms beyond the heavens, heavenly places. And so David says, if I ascend to heaven, 
what does he find? He says, you are there. David continues. He, he looks down after looking up. He says, if I make my place in Sheol, you are there. Even if David were di- to dig down into the, the very bowels of the earth, digging down, digging down, even if David were to make his place among the dead, David says this, if I make my place in Sheol, you are there. And so David looks up, and he also looks down, so he's going as high as he possibly can, stretching to the heavens, he's going down as possibly far as he can, going to the place of the dead, but that doesn't exhaust his search. In verse 9, he speaks about the, the wings of the morning. And David is putting our imaginations to work here. The idea is this. What would David find if he could sprout wings and fly to the very place where the sun rises each morning? If he could go to the the far, far east, the end of the world. And David turns his attention to the west as well. He, He speaks of the sea and the idea is this. What would happen if he went to the uttermost parts of the sea? If he jumped in a a ship and went where no man had gone before, the very limit of the West, what would he find there? So David stretches east, he stretches west, and he gives the answer, verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So David is going in every direction, up, down, Left, right, but David is not content with that. What about the darkness, David asked? Could the darkest night hide me from the Lord? David answers, verse 12, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Or perhaps when David was just a a clump of cells within his mother before any man, anyone knew of his existence or his being, would then he be unknown to the Lord? Would that be true of then, that God was not with him? David answers, verses 13 through 15. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What is David saying? You were there. So what has David done in Psalm 139? He's giving us this quest. Well, he has led us to search out the dimensions of our God. And the reality that David shows us is that there are no dimensions to his being. The compass does not limit him or confine him. He is beyond the east and beyond the west, beyond the north and the south. Nor does any height nor depth confine him. He is far above all height and he is far below all depth. In dimensions, if we think about different realities... They do not limit him. Whether we think of heavenly places, God is there. Whether we think of the place of the dead, where all the dead go, Sheol, the Lord is there. And David teaches us clearly and plainly that the Lord is above all, beyond all, and everywhere in between. And that is what David tells us it means for the Lord to be the God who is omnipresent. He's not limited by any spatial reality. So David gives us a great help. He is is showing us, he's giving us a primer on God's presence. David is telling us, look this way, look that way. You will find God. You are there, David repeats to us again and again and again. But here we need to think really hard. We're receiving David's testimony. We're saying yes, we're saying amen. But we ask a question, and it's an important question. How is God omnipresent? 
Or to put it another way, how is God present everywhere? David has taken us to the east and the west, up and down in all of these places. And we ask, well, how is God present in all of these places? And here we have to make some specific denials so that we do not misunderstand our God or the way he exists in his perfect life. So we're going to make three denials about God. We're going to deny division, diffusion, and movement. So let's first of all deny division. So we'll use some illustrations to help us think here. So picture in your mind a cooking scene gone bad. Something was on the stove and that something that was on the stove was on the stove for too long and that something has turned into a burnt offering. And so you just come home and that something was on the stove. You walk, you open the door and what do you say? Whoa, it stinks in here. In fact, you might say, everything stinks in here after you're home for a while. The whole house stinks like that burnt something on the stove. But here is the thing we have to think about. While the whole house stinks like that burnt thing, we'd say the stink and the smoke are everywhere in the house, the whole house stinks differently. Think about the kitchen. There's the scene of the crime. There's the pan and the, the something that was in there. That room is filled with smoke and stink. It, it just almost knocks you out. You have to open a window to get fresh air in. It's heavy and thick. And then you leave that room and you go to an adjacent room. You go to the living room or the, the dining room. And the smoke is there. You can see it and the stink is there, but it, it's not like it was in the kitchen. And then you leave the living room or dining room and you go to a room on the far end of the house, perhaps a bedroom, and there you get the slightest smell of the stink, just a little bit of it. And so the smoke and the stink are everywhere, but they are everywhere differently. And here is the point we need to see. God's presence is not diffused throughout all created reality. To say this, there isn't more of God in heaven, like smoke, it's really thick. And then you go to earth, and there is less of it, like the living room. And then if you go to the place of the dead or, or hell, there'd be even less, just a, just a slight, small sniff of it. We have to deny diffusion. God's presence and existence is not diffused throughout created reality. Second, we must deny division. We must deny division. So think here of a Thanksgiving meal. We had Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago. So picture that in your mind. The, the table is set with all sorts of good food. There's the turkey at the center. There's mashed potatoes. There's cranberries. There's green beans and peas and, and pies and gravy and all sorts of good things. And there's a family gathered around the table. And importantly, there's a small child, a little boy under the age of two. And what mom and dad do is they put everything on that plate for that little boy. And the little boy loves to eat. He's not shy. And so what does he do? He, he starts to eat that meal. And so some of it gets on his own clothing. Some of it falls on the floor around him. There are people who are sitting next to him and they're coated with the food as well. And somehow, some way, food gets into every corner of the dining room. It's a mystery, but somehow it happens. From that one little boy, food is plastered everywhere. And so if you're taking in that scene, you're at that Thanksgiving meal, what might you say after you watch that little boy eat all of that food, share in that meal? You might, be say, you might say, that meal is everywhere. The meal is everywhere. 
And here's the point. God's presence cannot be divided. How is that meal everywhere? It's everywhere through division. Part of the meal is on that boy's shirt, and part of the meal is on the floor, but not so with our God. When we speak of God's omnipresence, we do not mean that part of God is in heaven, and then part of God is on earth. That there's a chunk of God over here and a chunk of God over there. There's an aspect of his being over here and an aspect of his being over there. That would be to divide God up, and we cannot divide God up. So we deny division. And last, we must deny movement. We must deny movement. And so think here of a baseball game. If you like baseball, picture it here. You're watching the game, and you're watching your team play defense. So all the fielders are out, and the other team goes up to bat, and the batter strikes the ball, and it's a soft blooper. It's just going outside, shortstop in the second baseman, and the shortstop in the second baseman can't get to the ball. It's one of those balls that's really frustrating. It's not hit hard, but it seems like it's going to hit grass. But then there's the center fielder, and he is this quick guy, and he is on the move. He sprints to the ball. He reads it, and then he makes a headfirst dive, outstretch, and he catches the ball. He's there. And then it's the next batter. Pitcher throws the pitch, and this time the ball is struck hard, and it's traveling. It looks like it's going to go over the fence. And this time the center fielder sees it, reads it, and he starts sprinting right towards the wall. He runs to the wall. He plants one foot on the wall. He springs up. He reaches his glove, and he makes the catch, bringing the ball back into play. Now just think about that. As you're watching that center fielder play, what might you be tempted to say as you watch him play center field? You might be tempted to say, that center fielder is everywhere. He is covering the whole baseball field, catching every ball. Here is the point. God doesn't move. Think about that center fielder. How is he everywhere? He is everywhere by movement. He's really fast. He can move his legs. That's how he is everywhere but not so with our God. He does not move. He has never moved. And so when we're talking about God's omnipresence, we're not talking about his speed. So you think about this situation that sometimes we, we think falsely about God. God is up in the heavens. That's where he lives. That's, he's doing his thing up there. And somebody on earth has some sort of need. God hears about it and takes action. And so what does God do? He leaves heaven and he sprints to that place. And we say he's omnipresent because he's really, really fast. We must deny that. We must deny movement. And so we need to not deny diffusion, division, and movement. And we could deny more this morning, but we don't have time. So how should we answer our question? Well, how is God everywhere? Well, here is the answer. God is present everywhere, all the time, with the whole of his divine being simultaneously. Just take that in. God is present everywhere. So God is everywhere. There is no part of reality where God is not. And he is everywhere all of the time. He's not there sometimes. He is there all of the time. And he is there everywhere all of the time with his whole divine being. So wherever God is, he is there with his whole self. And he does this simultaneously in all places. That confounds our minds. God is so big and beyond us. He can give all of himself to every part of created reality with no division or multiplication. 
The Puritan George Swinock puts it like this, and he uses some helpful phrases, so just listen to what he says. God is whole in the whole world, and he is whole in every part of the whole world. If he were to make 10,000 worlds, his whole essence would be in every part of each world, yet without the least motion, extension, or multiplication. Those are awe-inspiring words. God is whole in the whole world, and he is whole in every part of the whole world. And if we were to imagine this, if he were to make 10,000 worlds, his whole essence would be in every part of each world. And why do we talk like this? Why do we deny diffusion and division and movement, and why do we speak about God like this? Well, the answer is this, because the scriptures train us to speak like this about God. For example, Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So what is Jeremiah doing? He's picturing all of reality as this space. And what is he saying? God fills all of it. One God filling all things. Or think about 1 Kings 8. Verse 27, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so Solomon is talking here, the the house of God, the, the temple is being dedicated and he's making this point, God is too big, he is too immense for this house to fit God. In fact, Solomon believes this so much, he looks at all created reality and he's saying God is too big to fit in created reality. And so Jeremiah says, think about this space. God fills it. And Solomon says, think about a bigger thing, something that we can't even think. We're thinking about realities and reality goes beyond. God is bigger. And we get another text, one that really hurts our minds, and it's from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. We exist and all creaturely dimensions exist within the one God, within the one God. And surely much more could be said here and developed here and thought through here as we consider this great and big doctrine about our great and big God. But we need to think practically and concretely about this doctrine. What are we supposed to do with this God who is omnipresent? We've sketched out the dimensions of God from Psalm 139 and we have listened to the testimony of other scriptures but what are we supposed to do with this doctrine? How is it, how is it to have meaning for us as God's people? And here we are met with a choice. So think about a road and there's a fork in it. You have to go left or you have to go right. Those are the only two options. And so option number one, on the one hand, you can resist and reject the omnipresent God. You can say no. Or, on the other hand, you can welcome and embrace the omnipresent God. Now, sadly, many resist and reject the omnipresent God. To many, this doctrine is terrible. Some just reject it out of hand. God cannot exist like that, and I will not exist with a God like that. Others say, yes, there is a God, and maybe he is omnipresent, but practically speaking, they they want to, to limit God, and they think that God is just merely in the heavens, and we go about our lives doing our thing our way. Psalm 94 tells us how this works. The psalmist says, they pour out their arrogant words 
All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. What are they doing? They're limiting God's presence. He is just in the heavens. He doesn't have anything to do with us down here. But we are God's people, and we must not be like the wicked who reject God. Instead, as God's people, we must learn to embrace and gladly welcome the omnipresent God into our lives, into all parts of our lives. We must willingly lean as God's people into the omnipresent God and grab hold of him with both of our hands. So the question is, well, how do we do that? We're hearing this doctrine about omnipresence. How do we gladly welcome and embrace the omnipresent God? How do we do that in our lived lives? I want to set before you two directions from Psalm 139. If you want to embrace God this morning, you need to do these two things. First thing you need to do is you need to invite this God's scrutiny into your life. Do you want to welcome him and live with him? Embrace his scrutiny. Because God is everywhere all the time with his whole being. He therefore knows everything about you, and that means everything. David says this. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 139. David says, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. This is what David knows to be true of God. You've searched me, you've known me. God is everywhere, and because he's everywhere, he knows all things intimately so. So how does David respond to verses 1 and 2? Does he hide from God? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. They, they try to sow fig leaves for themselves and they run away from the Lord. Does David get bashful and shy? You are with me all of the time? He tries to cover himself up from the Lord. No, go to the end of the psalm. Look at verses 23 and 24. This is how David responds to the omnipresent God. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is David doing? How is he responding to the omnipresent God? He is inviting God's scrutiny into his life. God is everywhere. And so he says, God, I embrace this truth and welcome it. He's essentially saying something like this. God, you are everywhere. And because you are everywhere, you know everything. And because you know everything, you know everything about me. So search me out, all of me. Outward things, inward things. Consider all of the thoughts of my head. Consider all of them. Consider all of the desires of my heart, every single one of them. Consider the deeds of my hands. Consider the glances of my eyes. Take a look at my browser history that no one else has ever seen or will ever see. Take a look at all the movies that I have watched by myself. Consider how I've spoken to my spouse and my coworkers and my family and my friends. Consider all of me. Search me out. Know me. I welcome your scrutiny. I want your scrutiny. I need it. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, have you invited God's scrutiny into your life? Is that, a, is that how you live with your God? And David is instructing us, this is how we are to live with our God. We ought to be people who welcome our God's scrutiny. Search me, know me. And here is the truth. If we were all to daily invite the scrutiny of God into our lives, 
being mindful of his presence everywhere we go, our lives would be so different. Would it not? Just imagine you're being tempted to do something that is sinful and you are by yourself. And what do you do? Search me, O God. Know me. We are reminded that our God is with us wherever we go. And what happens to that sin? It becomes ugly. And we hate it. And I think if we were to daily invite the scrutiny of God, the result would be this. Our feet would stand in the way of everlasting. Our feet would be planted there. So why do we often sin? Well, because we reject or forget or deny the omnipresence of God. We say in our hearts, God is not here with me. And David is instructing us. He is telling us, verses 23 and 24, as God's people, we should be praying, search me and know me. Search me and know me. So that's the first direction. If you want to welcome and embrace the omnipresent God, you need to pray with David and you need to invite God's scrutiny into your life. Second direction is this. You need to learn how to rest in God's presence. Rest in God's presence. So at the heart of Psalm 139 is consolation. And so the psalm is bracketed by this, this, this knowledge of God's knowledge. Search, you've searched me, you've known me. And then the psalm ends with search me and know me. But in the middle, David is finding consolation for his soul. And in the middle, David is searching out the infinite dimensions of God's being. And he's doing this not as some sort of theological project, as some sort of dispassionate theologian. Rather, why is David doing this? Why did he lead us on this quest? Well, I think the answer is this. He does this because he is a needy and weak sinner who is trying to rest in the immensity of his great God. What is David doing? He is describing the plenitude of God. He is describing the bigness of God to himself so that his own soul, in the midst of his present circumstances, would take comfort in this big and great God. David is preaching to himself. Just think about the comfort that is here for us as God's people. Just think about it. If you are lonely, we spend so much of our lives being lonely. If you are cast in the farthest, most remote places of the world like John Payton was, if you are living in a different city, not where you're from and you don't have any family members, if you are on a long journey full of danger, if you are pressed and persecuted, if you are forlorn and overcome, if you are tired and weary, if your friends and family have disappeared and disappointed you, here is the truth. In Jesus, God will never desert you. Even better, as we apply this doctrine to our hearts, the whole God is present with you all of the time, everywhere you go. In the covenant of grace, the whole God is with you and for you. His mercy, his power, his kindness, his love, all for you. And this is the great benefit and consolation of being a Christian. Think about it like this, and we need to think carefully. God is with all men. He is with the evil man and the righteous man. Why? Because God is present everywhere and his presence invades all of created reality. While God is with all men, both the evil man and the unrighteous man, he is only for those who are found in his son Jesus. He is with you differently. He is with you in the covenant of grace. And because he is with you in the covenant of grace, he is for you. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us every single day. We meet trying circumstances every day, circumstances that annoy us and make us tired 
and weary that test us, and we are given a choice. Will I take my rest in this God? Will I take my consolation in this God? Will I call to mind in this present circumstance his near presence for me? Or will I be like the godless and will I forget him or reject him or turn away from him to something or someone else? And hear this, this is David's counsel, and it's not just David's counsel, it is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's. It is the testimony of all of the scripture, it is the testimony of, of John Payton, it is the testimony of Moses and David. This is what you need to do. You need to take your rest in this great God. And let me tell you, it is work to take your rest in this great God. It is hard to take your rest in this great God. And so what do you need to do? You need to stir yourself up to rest in God. You need to stir yourself to rest in God. How do you do that? Well, we know how to do it because what has David been doing in this psalm? He has been stirring himself up again and again and again to take his rest in this big and great God. Do you remember what David did? He went up. If, if I go to the heavens and then he went down, if I went to the place of the dead, to Sheol, if I went to the east where the sun rises and if I went to the west on the far edge of the sea, if I went to all of these places, you are there. And David is just preaching to his soul. He says it again and again. You are there. You are there. You are there. And so if we want to receive this application, we need to work at it. And we do it as David did. We go on the quest and we preach the truth to ourselves in whatever situation or place we find ourselves preaching to our souls. You are there. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we take great comfort in you. You are there and you are here with us. It is glorious to consider your presence. We cannot run from you. We cannot hide from you, and so teach us, we pray today, to welcome and gladly embrace your presence. We do not want to be like the godless or the forgetful. We want to be a people who are mindful of you in all areas of our lives. And so we pray, would you scrutinize us? Show us our wrongs. Lead us in the way of everlasting. Even more, would you comfort our hearts with this great consolation. You are with us and you are for us. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.